Well, I've got to ask you probably the most important question that can be asked. Who is Jesus? Just as important or more important than the question is the answer. How you answer that. Who is Jesus to you? Here in America, in 2015, Barna did research on what Americans think about Jesus. And it's pretty amazing that 92% of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. Real person who, who walked in the flesh and, and all of that. Uh, a little bit less, just, to, just over half of Americans consider him to be divine, to have some divinity. And then from that, people believe. Uh, what's interesting is those who believe, there's this uh, percentage, about 15% of Christians believe that they are saved by their good works and by following the Ten Commandments. Nothing to do with Jesus and his his death and resurrection. And so when we look at stats like this, what does it mean? What does it really mean for us? I think what it means is that here in America, this probably doesn't surprise you at all, that Christianity is a mile wide, but an inch deep. And that is not okay with me. As a pastor, I do not settle for that. And as a pastor, I want us to be, to use that phrase, I want us to be a mile wide and a mile deep. And it starts here and in what we talk about. And so for us, as we were looking at our next series, we wanted to do something that would explain the gospel, that would show us who Christ is, really why we are here. And so we are starting today a series called Kingdom Culture, the Gospel of Matthew. So for the better part of this year, we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew. We're going to be studying it, looking at it. What does it say and how does it answer this question on who is Jesus? So first, let's talk about Matthew. Who is Matthew? And what is this book about? I'll give you kind of, today will be a little bit more of an introduction onto this book. But who is Matthew? Matthew, we, we see him by two names, Levi and then Matthew. He was a follower of Jesus. He was a disciple. So he had firsthand uh, uh, evidence of what he wrote in here. He saw it. He heard it. And so much of that is here in his gospel. But before he was a disciple, he was a tax collector. If you know much about tax collectors back then, they were not loved people. They were despised. The reason is, is because they were employed, basically, by the Roman government. They were employed by the government to take the taxes, take the money from the Jewish people, and send it back to Rome. So Jews didn't like that. They considered the, the tax collectors as unclean. So if a tax collector came and was uh, asking for the taxes that you owed, you would try to give exact change because you would never, a good Jew would never take money back from an unclean tax collector. Tax collectors kind of work like this. There was one who was licensed by the Roman government, and they would have a region. And underneath them, they would hire publicans, people who would go to different places, strategic places, and they would be the ones who would collect the money. They would collect the tax. They would collect, collect some for their boss, like a surcharge. Then they would collect some for themselves. So these tax collectors like Matthew would take maybe 5 to 12% of that tax for themselves. That's how they would be paid. Matthew, we know he had a house because he threw a celebration for Jesus a little bit later. He brought all of his friends, other publicans. But we know that he, having a house, he was wealthy. He was a wealthy tax collector. 
His spot was right out Capernaum. He had a little spot out there. And so he would be collecting money, taxes, from those who are coming in to sell or to buy and those going out. Also, it was right on the Sea of Galilee. So he would go tax the fishermen. When they would come back with their fish, he would tax them for each fish. Others that would come from the other, other cities on the lake that would dock at Capernaum, he would tax them as well. Given the, the proximity to where Jesus grew up and some of the, the places that Jesus passed through this place quite a bit, we don't know, this is speculating, but it's, it's uh, quite possible that Matthew had taxed Jesus earlier in his career. And when Jesus came through, he would tax him. Because in Matthew 9.9, when Jesus calls him, Matthew immediately gets up and leaves all of that behind to follow Jesus. And potentially that's when Jesus changes his name from Levi to Matthew to give him a new identity. But I can imagine that Matthew had seen Jesus and was intrigued by him, was interested in how he carried himself and what he said, he thought about him. And so when Jesus called him, he got up and left. It's a little bit about Matthew. We don't know much about how he died. There are some ideas, but um, we know that he, he died a martyr's death as he followed Christ to the very end. In his, his gospel, he follows kind of a nice timeline, a nice chronology that he starts. It starts with his, his birth, with Jesus' birth, and so we, we covered that a couple months ago, so we're not gonna get into those birth stories, the narrative right there, but he starts there. Then he talks about Jesus' kind of adult ministry, those three years that he ministered and, and all of his teachings. He puts that in there, and then he ends with, naturally, with his death and his resurrection. That's his gospel. But that's the part that's kind of in order. But just so you guys know, when he, during the time of his teaching, he, he takes those and he's going to kind of reorder them some. He'll, he kind of puts them more into topics, you know, kind of like an accountant would with different line items that all relate to each other. And so that's how Matthew will write his book, which was totally appropriate of the day and age. We live in a day and age where we like everything to be completely, you know, chronological. But for him, he'll take some liberties with that. But just so that you know. This gospel is one of the most important. Uh, but I would say this. It's probably one of the least favorite for us here in America. And here's why. It's the most Jewish of all of the gospels. Meaning this, that it, it has the most Old Testament references, more than any other. But even more so, it draws more on the Old Testament stories. So that its readers, when they're reading this, they would, they would hear something and would say, oh, that reminds me of the Old Testament. Of course, all of the writers do that to some extent, but none do it as much as Matthew. So here in America, we like John and we like Mark because it's nice and short. And Luke is good too. But Matthew, while it has some good passages like the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer, sometimes it's harder for us to understand because we don't get all of it. But Matthew is very clear saying that if you're going to understand who Jesus is, you've got to understand where he came from. You've got to understand some of these references that he fulfills. So it's very important that you understand the Old Testament. But again, for us in the United States, this part of the Bible, the Old Testament, is not the thing that we study the most. We love Paul. 
We love the Gospels and all that, but we don't always read the Old Testament. I mean, we know it has good stories, right? Genesis and Exodus and all of that good stuff. Jonah and the whale, Daniel and the lion's den, like really good stories. But for so many of us, we get, we kind of get stuck there. That in-between stuff, a lot of those details, we just kind of pass off and like, you know, that's cool and all, but that's kind of more introduction. What we like is the New Testament. And as long as we do that, we're going we're gonna to miss out on this Gospel of Matthew. And so my job, and, and for us as we move forward, we are going to try the best we can to bring some of those things to light to help us understand what Matthew's talking about and some of the things that he's referencing from the Old Testament. So I hope you enjoy that. I hope that you enjoy this time as we look into this gospel that we learn who Jesus is. All right? So that's kind of the the background. Now, how does it start? How does this book start? Well, I was kind of joking with some of the pastors this week that when I look at the beginning of Matthew, I was kind of joking saying, this is the worst opening statement than in any of the other books in the Bible, right? I mean, no other book in the Bible starts with a genealogy. And you guys know stories, right? You know, you know stories, how that first sentence is important. That's what you learned in school. You know, the teacher would talk about, oh, the most important, you know, uh, uh, part of the whole book is that first sentence, that first paragraph that grabs your attention. (laughs) I was also thinking, some of you who are older, um, do you remember in the 80s there was a movie called Throw Mama from the Train? Okay, and that whole movie, the whole beginning part of it is he's, Billy Crystal's a writer, and he's trying to start this book, and he's stuck, he has this block, and that's what the whole movie is uh, about, getting rid of this block, but he starts, the whole first five minutes is him trying to start this first line, and the best that he can come up with was this, it was humid, period. And that was, that's like the worst start of any book, right? I, I'm gonna, I wrote down a few other stories that have really good first sentences. See if you recognize these, okay? This one, all children except one grow up. Remember that one? Peter Pan, all right? Good, it's a good start. How about this one? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, Pride and Prejudice. This one, I won't read the whole thing. This was my favorite from high school. I love this book um, in high school. And I won't read the whole thing, but you'll know it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness, right? A tale of two cities. And then this one, this one's just funny. I like this one. Uh, George Orwell's book, Coming Up for Air. It starts this way. The idea came to me the day I got my new false teeth. Isn't that funny? <laughs> What's the idea? Right? What came to him? Why is he getting false teeth? Who is this person? They're meant to draw us in and intrigue. And for us here in the West, we read this, you know, the historical record of Jesus Christ, and we're like, oh, man, that's not a good start. Matthew, you blew it. You had a great opportunity to give a really good first line, and you start with, this is a historical record? But here's the problem. For me, that doesn't capture my attention. But for his writers, they loved it. They ate it up. They geeked out on this first sentence like this. This is the way all books should begin. Because this says it all. 
This is going to answer all their questions. Who is this Jesus? Where does he come from? What's his family line? Where's the scandals in, his, in his, the background? Who are the people? Who are the main people? Who are those obscure people? That's what they loved. So really, Matthew hit it out of the park with this. This was intentional. It wasn't to put us to sleep, but it was to grab our attention. Who is the story about and where does he come from? So, today we're going to look at one verse and one verse only. By the time we're done, you might have it memorized. This is what the verse says. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy, or some of your translations say the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's what we see in this one verse. We see that Jesus, he is the long-awaited one, one from the beginning of time, from the beginning of this book, when it also begins with a great sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is what it's about. All this is about this one person. Jesus is the long-awaited one who restores our relationship with God while he rules and blesses the world. This is what the story is about. So we see three things in here, three points. First point is this, that Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who saves. This is what it's all about. This genealogy, this historical record is about Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ. In some of your versions, if you have NIV, it says Jesus the Messiah. So let's, let's start right at the beginning, right, right at the basics. This story is about Jesus Christ, okay? Who is Jesus Christ? We have two names. You have Jesus and Christ. So just to point out, all right, this is maybe obvious, but Jesus' last name is not Christ, okay? <laughs> that Christ is a, Jesus is a name, Christ is a title, so only two times in this book will Matthew use this, these two words together, Jesus Christ. He'll use Jesus and he'll use Christ, but only two times, and it's both in chapter one, does he put these together. And so this story is about Jesus Christ. What do these names mean? First, Jesus. Jesus is the name that the angel gave Joseph to give to this child, right? Jesus, it's the Greek word that means the Lord shall save. The Lord shall save. In, in Hebrew, with Joshua, Yeshua, it's the same word, okay? So Joshua and Jesus will be the same, just Greek and Hebrew. But the important thing is, what does it mean? The Lord shall save. So in verse 21, when the angel is with Joseph, he says, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And put those two together. Name this child Jesus, for the Lord shall save and then he says, your child will save people from their sins. Your child is the Lord. Your child is the long-awaited one who will save people from their sins. You think Joseph's mind was blown by that? Simple, we read by it really quick, but that's a significant title. You also have Christ here. Christ means the anointed one. It's Greek, all right? So Greek for the anointed one. In, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it would be the word Messiah. 
Messiah also means the same thing. It's the anointed one, the person who was anointed to save people from their sins. So really interesting here, interesting to me. Some of you might not find this interesting, but in, in the Old Testament, there's over 70 references to people that were anointed. But out of these 70 references, there's, there's, there's three groups of people that had this anointing, that were anointed for this special purpose. And here's the groups that may, they may not surprise you. Prophets. Prophets were anointed. Right? Elisha was, was anointed. The Lord talks about his anointing. Uh, his, his, he says in 1 Chronicles 6, 11, do not touch my anointed. Do not touch my prophets. These prophets had this special anointing. Right? Also, priests were anointed. Priests, those high priests, they would, before they would start their service, they would be anointed. In Leviticus 8, when, when the tabernacle is built, Moses would go through and anoint all the different instruments inside the tabernacle and the altar outside. But then he went to Aaron and anointed him to be priest. And then, probably more references than any, are related to kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. Saul, David, Solomon, all the other obscure ones had this anointing. So when Matthew starts this way, saying this is a story of Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, those original hearers would say, ah, I get it. He is the anointed one. He is the one who fulfills those anointed offices. He would be the one that would completely fulfill the office of the, the prophet who would speak from God to people. That he would be the one that would, would be the priest, fulfill that, to speak from the people to the God, but he would also be the king who would rule them, who would lead them. So this is important. Jesus is the Christ. It talks about it in Matthew 16, that Jesus is the Christ, and it says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. So Matthew, right at the beginning, is really intentional in saying, who is this Jesus? He's not just a man, not just a good person, whatever, but he is the one we've been waiting for. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the one who will save us from our sins. So who is Jesus to you? Is he that good moral example like a prophet? Is he that good religious teacher like a priest? Or is he that good leader like a king? He's not just one. He's all of those. And all of those come together as Christ who saves us from our sins. So that's the first thing we see in that introduction. Here's the second thing. That Jesus is the one who rules. What's the next line? The son of David. The story the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, what would that mean? Why, does, why do you put that? I mean, out of all the kings, all that, that's huge. One, that's a messianic title. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's, it's to draw us back to who was David. David was the mighty warrior king, the one who established Israel, who set the boundaries, who, who got the enemies out of the nation, who, who put them on the right course who started uh, the building of the temple and things like that. I mean, ultimately, he was a son, but he, he got all that established. This is David. 
And it's important that, he, that we understand that this Jesus is the son of David. He uses it 17 times more than any other gospel writer uses this title. But it's, it's a messianic title. It's, this is the one who, who is, this is what the Messiah is called. And we know that from Matthew 22. Much later in the book, we'll get, that, get there near the end of the year. But the Pharisees were gathered together, and here's what Jesus asked them. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Let's talk about the Messiah, everybody. And he says, whose son is he? And what's their response? The son of David. In their eyes, when they looked at the Messiah, the long-awaited one, it was clear. Whose son is he? The son of David. Matthew picks up on that, saying, this is the son of David. He's the Messiah. But he comes in, this, in the shape and the, the example of this king, of King David. Everything that King David started, Jesus would be the one who would fulfill it. He would see it to be accomplished. It's interesting, though, who noticed Jesus as the son of David and who didn't. Who noticed Jesus? We see in Matthew 9 and 12 and 15 and 20 and 21 references to Jesus. And here's the people that, that notice him. In chapter 9, two blind men said, have mercy on us, son of David. In chapter 12, he heals a blind man, one who couldn't see, couldn't speak. And the crowd says, could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? I mean, he's healing blind people for crying out loud. This might be him. In Matthew 15, very interesting, that here's who recognizes him. It's not even, this person isn't even Jewish. This is a Canaanite woman who's begging. Poor Canaanite woman. And she says, have mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. Again, in chapter 20, it's two blind men that call, Lord, have mercy on us. And in 21, on Palm Sunday, as he's coming into Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. Who paid attention? The blind, the poor, the obscure crowds. They saw Jesus as the king, the Messiah. But who didn't notice? Everybody else, the spiritual leaders. So when Matthew writes all that, it's kind of a rebuke. It's a rebuke to the spiritual leader saying, you had the king right in front of you and you didn't even notice. And even more than that, you didn't respond. And we don't have kings here, so this is kind of a, we have to, you know, what's that mean to like notice a king? But you guys, you've all watched enough movies with kings in it that, that kings are not easy to miss. All right, kings don't blend in. Kings, they, they stand out. They're striking. And there's a response. When you see the king, you respond to him. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and so they didn't notice or they just ignored. But here with Matthew, he doesn't want you to ignore or not notice. He's saying, who is Jesus? He is the king, the warrior king, the son of David. I want you to notice, is he the king of your life? Does he lead you? Do you follow him? Are you a part of his kingdom? Do you act like you're part of his kingdom? As you read the book of Matthew, you're gonna see this, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say kingdom of God because 
they, they would be careful with that name. The kingdom of God, talking about God's kingdom. All of this tied up in this David, the son of David, the king. So we see Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one who leads us. Third thing we see is Jesus is the one who blesses. The one who blesses. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. Why son of Abraham? Well, that also is very important. Because who is Abraham? He is the father of Israel. He's the father of the multitude. But more than that, it's that, that Abraham had a covenant made with him that he would be a blessing to all people, to this whole world. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that. In Genesis 12, verse 3, so the Lord said to Abram, that's before his name was changed, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You can't miss what he was just saying. That through you, Abram, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to this world. And so when we start the story, this is the story of Jesus, he is the son of Abraham. We're picking up that now this blessing that that started with Abraham is coming through Jesus, and he would be the one now who would bless this world. How does he bless the world? But through salvation. Through the salvation that he extends, that he offers to you to change your life, to give you a new direction, a new focus, a new eternity. In Matthew 25, you see Matthew is near the end of his story. It said this, that he talks about the Son of Man coming in glory, sitting on his throne, right? Kind of a very kingly image here. And then the people are before him. This is the day of judgment, right? He's separating those who believe and those who don't. And he says this, he says, then the king... It's that king again. We'll say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. All that comes through Jesus Christ. When these people have received him as their savior, receive this eternal blessing. So all that comes through Christ. Now, before we move on, let me just stop and talk about this word blessing. I mean, to bless, to be blessed, and give a blessing. What does all that word, what does all that mean? We say it a lot. We say it when we sneeze and all that kind of stuff. But what's it mean? Right. Literally, it means to be fortunate or to be happy. But mainly, that God is the one who makes, gives fortune to us, who makes us happy. That it all comes from him. And so when, this week when I was studying this, I was looking at all these references to blessing. There's a lot of them. When you put all those different, you know, word forms together, there's a lot of them. But here's what I look, here's what I noticed. I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But you can fact check me. I didn't see any that said where well, we bless God, that we bless Him. Now we praise Him and we love Him and worship and all that. Yes, I didn't see any like we are the ones who bless God. Instead, what I saw over and over and over again are words like this, that we are blessed by the Lord 
or I will pour out my blessing upon you. He pours out. What it means is God is the one who holds the blessings. He's the one who has them, not us. But he's the one that in his divine wisdom gives them to his people. He pours them down on us. So then what do we do? We'll be blessed by God. We find salvation in Jesus Christ. And then guess what? Then we bless others. There's lots of verses in here that talk, especially in the New Testament, about blessing one another. By the way, we care for each other, love each other, support each other. So here's, when we talk about blessings, here's how it works. God's the one who pours these blessings down on you, primarily through Jesus Christ. That's the most important blessing, to have salvation. But then we, as ones who are blessed, we take that out. And that's why Matthew closes his gospel with this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go bless them. Now that you've been blessed, go bless others, and I will be with you till the end of the age. That's what blessings are. So we look at our world, and we know that our world needs to be blessed. We know that it's broken, right? That, that's, that should not surprise anyone. Our world is broken. But how do we fix it? How do we bless this world some would say through politics, through the government, or the military, or education, or social justice. You know, just by the wisdom, finding men and women who are wise and following them. That's not going to fix the world. That's not going to bless the world. Instead, it comes from God to his people, the church. They are the ones who are blessed. And then, you as the church, take it into politics, take it into the government, take that blessing into the military, take it into education, take it into health care, take it into all these different areas, into business, take it into those areas and be a blessing. Let God work, let him pour out this blessing through you to others so they would find Christ, they would be healed. So when Matthew starts this gospel, with this is the genealogy, this is the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that means a lot. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior? The one that you're following? The one you are looking to to be blessed? That's who Christ is. And so Matthew, when he starts this, he says, let me be clear. This is who Christ is. He's the one we've been waiting for, the anointed one. He's the one that you can put your faith in and your trust in. And I urge you to do so today. I, I don't assume, I don't assume that just because you come, you might have been coming here for a long time, many, many years, that you put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you have, I, I, I know a lot of you have. But there might be someone here that has never done that. And just consider Jesus a good person. He's good. Listen to him. He's wise. Has a good ethic. But you've never put your faith in Jesus. And I, 
I want you to do it today. I want you to see that this, this Jesus is someone that you can trust, that you can put your faith in, somebody that you can follow, someone that you can just receive blessing, but someone who can save you from your sins and put you into a right relationship with Jesus. That is the most important question and answer of all time. So before you leave, have you answered that question?